seated now. Tim. He will hold me fast. That's an old song, or at least an old lyric, but Keith and Kirsten Getty have put it to music, and uh, we learned about it and really enjoy singing that song. It makes me think of my grandma, okay? Uh, she used to use that word fast, not in the, in the sense that you were really quick at getting somewhere or getting something done, but uh, as in the idea of fastening something tightening it up, holding it so it doesn't move. Um, and so that's what God does for us. He holds us fast. We're not going to lose. He's not going to lose his grip on us, and we won't lose our connection with him. So we're thankful for the promise that God has given to us. Um, Scott has asked me to share or to let him share a testimony uh, concerning Victor. We've been praying for Victor, following Victor's uh, life and situation uh, there while he's in, uh, in prison in Pennsylvania. So Scott would like to uh, take a minute to share something with Victor. I've got to grab a microphone for you, Scott. Thanks, Levi. Might as well step up here, otherwise nobody will see you. So as many of you know, and I'll just kind of speak to those out there on Facebook land right now, uh, I've been ministering to a friend of mine, a childhood friend. Uh, Now he's in uh, incarceration in Pennsylvania now for about uh, three and a half, four years. So earlier, well, let me go back a couple of weeks ago. I had uh, spoken to a couple of people about um, sending him some money so that he can get some commissary. Uh, Things have been really rough uh, during these COVID days, he's been incarcerated in uh, basically uh, isolated confinement for well over 400 days now, only being allowed out of his cell for 45 minutes a day to shower, make a phone call, uh, sort of socialize, um, if you'd even call it that. Well, uh, I raised some money, uh, a little over $100, and sent it to him and Last week, I had asked him exactly how it was he was uh, going to be uh, stewarding that money, you know, if he had gotten commissary and things like that. And he said, yeah, I I did end up buying some food, but not much. I've got to put away some money for uh, some shoes. He says, of course, I I tithe on that as well. Oh, sorry. Is that better? Uh, So... his, uh, his money went towards commissary, towards tithing, and then he said he had to put some money away for uh, some shoes and also a, a dentist appointment in there. There's, there's a small copay, and if there's any medicine, uh, he also has to kind of pay for that as well. When he had mentioned sneakers, it made me uh, remember that it's been two and a half years since we raised any sort of funds for him to get a pair of shoes and, you know, I, I joked about it with him. I said, yeah, I bet your shoes are speaking in tongues now, you know, just all flapping around and everything. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, he's, you know, he, he said, yeah, you know, uh, definitely use, it, use a new pair of shoes. So at that, you know, we just talked about other things and got off the phone, and I was just burdened with that. So it's not like me to ask, especially out, out there on Facebook, uh, but I felt burdened by the Holy Spirit to do it, so I just wrote a post and said, hey, this is, you know, my, my friend Victor, and so on and so forth, and, you know, again, long story short here, uh, 
within less than 24 hours, I had raised, the Lord has raised, it's, it's not me, really. Uh, God had put it on other people's hearts, and we've raised, you know, $350 uh, to be able to help him out. And he was really blown away by that. That kind of goes into the last song that we just uh, spoke about and sang about, is that the Lord will hold us fast. And there's many unanswered questions that Victor has on the inside that he just he doesn't have a lot of uh, resources to go to, but he does have a strong faith, and he knows that God will provide, and time and time again, he's being shown that. And another thing just about how God holds us fast is that there's uh, another brother in the Lord that uh, was, was really brought back in, in a, a fellowship kind of way. You know, like when, when we stray um, or we don't feel like we're doing enough for the Lord, that we just feel that there's a disconnect between us, us and our Father. Through that post, he was able to give, which was like an answer to his own prayer. And it really brought him back and connect. He was like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I get to give. And so this also on the curtails of praying for the offering and that it really being an act of worship. And we just thank God, you know, he, he owns all the cattle on the hill and all the hills, all of that. So um, just through that, that little act of obedience of the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to do this one thing that you've never done before, and for me it was put it out on Facebook, God already knew that it was going to restore more than just Victor's need. It was going to restore so much more than that. And Victor really does labor behind those walls. So with extra money, he's able to get extra commissary because he does love to make other people meals, especially those that just simply do not have anybody behind those prison walls as he also labors in the gospel. So with that, I just always say thank you uh, for, for lifting him up in prayer, and he is very, very grateful for that. And hopefully sometime next summer, uh, if the court allows, he'll be able to come up here. But he does have to... Uh, be in Pennsylvania during his parole period. So, but he does look forward to coming here and worshiping with us. Thank you, Scott. Gives of his commissary um, money that he receives. Can I tell you that one of the ministries he gives to is Calvary Baptist Church? So that's pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, the first time I got a letter from him with a check in it, I thought, like, well, what's going on? Is, is this a mistake or something? So I asked Scott. He said, no, he's, he's just giving from his offering to uh, the ministry here at Calvary. So uh, pray for Victor, uh, and, and if you're so moved to give to the, his need, uh, yes, the sneaker need has been met, but there may be other needs that he has as well. So uh, check with Scott on that. All right, take your Bibles, if you would, with and, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're jumping back into our study here in the book of Philippians, and we'll uh, conclude chapter 1 this morning as we uh, spend our time in God's Word together. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to focus on verses 27 through 30, but uh, let me remind you what the theme for the book of Philippians is. Uh, well, you tell me. Anybody remember? I know we, did, we weren't in our study last week uh, in Philippians, but can anybody remember what the theme for the book of Philippians is? It's pretty easy. It's a three-letter theme. 
You got it, Chloe. Look at that. Well done. All right. So joy. Joy is the theme of the book of Philippians. Paul is writing it. Uh, and interesting that we have this uh, testimony about Victor this morning. Because you know where Paul's writing the book of Philippians from, right? It's what we call one of his prison epistles. So he was under arrest and he was in prison when he wrote this. And he wrote about joy. Okay? Now... I understand that Paul was under house arrest, so he wasn't in uh, an actual prison behind bars and all that kind of stuff, but he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7, okay? Uh, So can you imagine about being joyful when you're chained to somebody else and probably somebody who didn't really appreciate why you were arrested? Uh, The Roman guards were not known to be religious people, and if they were, they certainly weren't religious with regard to the things of God. They were uh, probably more in tune with what was going on in the Roman pagan world. Uh, So Paul was chained to a Roman guard, and he wrote about having joy and being in joy and not letting certain things rob us of our joy. So the last time we were together in the book of Philippians, we talked about Paul's passionate service and how important it is for us to be passionate as we serve our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Serve, serve, serve was Paul's desire, and it was exemplified through so many different ways as we read about Paul in the New Testament. I think it's accurate to say that as believers, we have been saved to serve, okay? God didn't save us to simply gather together on Sunday morning and to sit in nice, comfortable, padded chairs and take in, like sponges, the Word of God. He wants us to be servants. He wants us to serve. He wants us to serve in the local body of believers. He wants us to serve one another. He wants us to be active in our faith. And that's what service is all about. That's why we say around here, if the Lord has burdened you for a particular ministry and it's not something that we are currently doing at Calvary Baptist Church, please share that burden with the church leadership so we can see how it can work possibly as it as another outreach or ministry of Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, We say in our covenant that God has saved us to serve others and that that serving is through the local body here of Calvary Baptist Church. Remember that old poster uh, with Uncle Sam where it had the picture of Uncle Sam on it and it says, I want you to serve. I want you to sign up. U.S. Army, enlist here. Um, I think as believers, we could understand better that God says, I want you. I want you serving. I want you involved in ministry. I want you giving back of your life for which I have redeemed. God wants you and I as the children of God to be serving him. You see, not only did Paul's passion produce fruitful service for Christ, but it also produced within Paul a joy that those who don't serve the Lord will never have. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, man, there's just something missing in my life. I'm thankful that I know the Lord is my Savior, and I'm thankful that I know where I'm going to spend eternity, but there's something missing. Well, if you're not serving the Lord, I can tell you that's something that's missing. Because there is a joy that comes to an individual's life for, from serving the Lord. And, and you know, sometimes, I'll admit to you, sometimes serving can be a drudgery. It can be uh, like wearying. It can make you tired. But you know what? When you're tired from serving God, that's a good tired. 
That's a tired that you can put your head on the pillow at night and you can say, oh, thank you, God, for what you've done through me today or in me or, or, or with, the, with the help of others in the body. Thank you for what you are doing. And you can go to bed and you can rest well because you know that you've been faithfully serving. You see, when you and I patiently serve our, passionately serve our great God, it will produce within us a certain kind of conduct. And that's where we want to focus our study this morning. And that conduct is a worthy conduct. It's a calling that you and I have been given by God himself. It's a calling that Paul wanted his Philippian believers to know and understand that if they had passionate service, it would result in faithful, fruitful service as well as allowing us to have a conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we talked this morning about this idea of a worthy conduct, Paul was driven by this worthy conduct. He wanted his life to be an example. And you know what? His life was an example, so much so that Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Whew. That's pretty intense. Paul says, follow me, and he had no qualms about saying that because he knew he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and if people followed Paul's example, then they would indeed be following and serving Jesus Christ. But we see this passion of Paul uh, as as we look at the New Testament and the things that Paul wrote from the pages of Scripture in the New Testament. There's three verses in the book of Philippians that we want to focus our attention on. Then we're going to jump around to several other passages so we can get an idea of what Paul's worthy conduct was. Would you stand with me, please, as we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 to the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. You follow along as I read. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Let's bow our heads and ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to worship you. And we've done that this morning already in our song and in our, in our giving. We've done that in uh, having testimonies and we've done that, Father, from our heart. And we know that you told the Samaritan woman that God is spirit and they who worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we ask that our offerings of praise and worship to you today is good and acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And Father, we ask now that as we continue to worship in your word, we, that we will be challenged, we will be encouraged, we will, uh, we will want to uh, take the word of God and apply it to our lives. We ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated as we uh, get stuck into this passage here in Philippians. Service, and not just service, but passionate service. What do you think of when you think of the word passionate? Um, to me, it's that kind of thing that, you know, everybody knows about it. 
Everybody is aware of what your passions are. Why? Because you talk about it, because you live it out. Okay, um, I can talk about it now because they're finally starting to win in the Yankees. Okay, um, somebody somebody picked on me a couple of weeks ago by saying you probably and I, I was complaining because I couldn't get the I, I I got the Yes Network so I can watch the Yankees right and for some reason they're playing games on picks and they're playing games on this station and on that station but they're not playing them on Yes and so I'm like man I paid for Yes I want to be able to watch the Yankees play on the Yes Network and somebody said well you really don't want to watch the Yankees right now anyway because they were mired in these losing streaks and they couldn't get they couldn't hit the ball they they had pretty good pitching but they couldn't win games but they knew that I was passionate about the Yankees, and I still am. And guess what? They've won like 15 out of 21, so hey, uh, let's keep it going. But you see, we're, you know that we're passionate about things because we tell other people about it, right? We want people to know. I mean, one day I went in, I had a Yankee t-shirt on, I had a Yankee mask on, I had uh, a Yankee jacket, and I had a Yankee hat on. I walked into one of the stores, uh, and somebody says, you a Yankee fan? I said, you betcha! And, and, and there's no shame in that. I mean, after all, they're the world's best team, right? 27 world champions. We can't, uh, you can't beat it. So as we think about passion, we know that we're passionate about things because we talk about them, because we live, live our lives based on something or other about them. You know what? There's nothing wrong with loving sports. Many of you are sports fans. There's nothing wrong with loving other things and being passionate about those things. But we should be passionate about Jesus Christ, passionate about serving our great God. And Paul was definitely passionate. Somebody told me the other day, um, they love to hear passionate preachers, and they used to come to our church. And so my wife says, well, do you think pastor's passionate? And she said, oh, my word, yes. I mean, the neighbors can hear him when he's passionate about it. Um, and I only wear this microphone so our Facebook uh, followers can hear us and, and for those that are hard of hearing can hear easier. But yeah, I mean, it's easy to get passionate about the Word of God because it's life-changing. It makes a difference. There's nothing that can change your life like the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about for salvation. Of course it's necessary for salvation, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning of what God has called you and I to be and to do. What has He called us to do? Well, we read in in Philippians chapter 1 that He's called us to a worthy conduct. And and we want to understand that passionate service leads to worthy conduct passionate service, you and I extending ourselves in the work of God leads to a worthy conduct. And I said that Paul was was driven by this idea of a worthy conduct. We're going to take a jaunt through uh, the New Testament scriptures, the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, quickly this morning and see what it means to have a worthy conduct from the idea or the mind of the Apostle Paul. You can turn with me if you want, or you can just listen. Um, I don't know if you'll have time to keep up with me, uh, because there's a lot to cover, uh, and we don't want to get... um, slowed down by everybody turning to the same passage of scripture. But here we go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You love that word beseech there. It says, I beseech you. You know what he's saying? I beg you. I implore you. If there's anything you do in life, let this be the guiding principle. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
In other words, live up to the expectation that God has for you as one of his children, as a follower of Christ, be that kind of person. You see, the subject matter in Ephesians chapter 4 is serving the Lord with the gifts that he has given us. In verse 16 of that same chapter, we see Paul's desire for the Ephesians to demonstrate their worthy conduct. He, He describes it a little bit for us when he says, from which the whole body... The whole body, the whole Ephesian church, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You see, my friends, when our conduct is worthy and our service is faithful, Paul says the result is growth within the body. And we're not talking about numerical growth within the body. We're talking about spiritual growth within the body. You and I, we we can see this growth in the body as we serve faithfully together and see God do a work that only God can do. When our conduct is worthy and our service is faithful, Paul says the body will grow together in unity as a body. Well, over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here we see that Paul says to the Colossian believers that they can be fully pleasing to the Lord if this is true. If what is true? Well, if they were fruitful... In every good work. Or we might say today, if they were effective in their service for the Lord. If they they continued on, whether it was easy or whether it was hard, they continued to serve. They could be effective in their walk with the Lord. He says, I want you to be fruitful. In other words, I want you to keep doing these good works. Don't be content with one or two. Let it be a lifestyle for you. Let it be something that is obvious when people look at your life that you are a servant of God because of the things you do with your life. Moving on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul was describing to the Thessalonian believers what worthy conduct looked like. Now, you might want to take a uh, time to turn to this passage because we're going to look at some of the verses uh, after verse 12 because Paul describes the worthy conduct in four different ways here in verses 13 through 16. Paul says in verse 13, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truths of the pages of scripture. And he says to the Philippian believers, in order to have a worthy conduct, you must base your life on the word of God, which you welcomed as exactly that. God's word, not man's word. Now, yes, Paul wrote certain verses and passages of scripture, as did Luke, as did Peter, as did 
uh, Matthew. I mean, you can go through the New Testament and find several different writers. And then if you open to the Old Testament, which, by the way, let me just say, that was probably what Paul talked about the most because that's what he had at his disposal, the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is so efficient that Paul says the Old Testament brought Timothy to an understanding of salvation. The Old Testament contains the gospel message so people can come to know Jesus as their Savior. I know that as New Testament church, we think that the, the, the Christian scriptures or, or from Matthew to Revelation is what is most uh, relevant for us. But don't sell the Old Testament short because the Old Testament is the foundation for believers, for followers of Christ, because it talks about the coming of Christ and the ministry that Christ would have. So don't be afraid. Don't shy away from the Old Testament. It's just as important to us. But Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, you welcomed it not as man's word, but as God's word. He goes on to say in the same verse there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the word of God also effectively works in you who believe. Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that is the key that makes this book effective in your life. If you wonder why you're not effective, why you don't understand Scripture, why you have a hard time applying Scripture, why you have a lack of desire to communicate Scripture, Paul says if you want to effectively have the Word of, life, the word of God moving and working in your life, you need to know Jesus as your Savior. It works effectively in the lives of those who believe. Effectively. If you want God's word to be effective in your life, you need to make sure, first of all and foremost, that you are a child of God, that you know him as your personal savior. And of course, if you don't, man, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to communicate with you how you can trust Jesus Christ as your personal savior. In verse 14 of that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God. In other words, those churches that have been known to be followers of the one true God, communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those in Thessalonica became imitators of those churches. They began to do the same thing. They began to rely on the scriptures as their sole authority for faith and practice. They began to communicate the scriptures to those around them. They became imitators of the churches of God. You know, they say that flattery, imitation is the best form of flattery. Boy, if we can imitate Christ and we can imitate the churches of God that are effectively serving. Now, that's one of the blessings of our fellowship. We gather together from time to time and we share ideas, we communicate. As I serve on the leadership team, every time we have a leadership meeting, we talk about, hey, what are you guys doing? Not that something that one church is doing is going to exactly work here at at Calvary Baptist Church in Preble. But we, it's ideas. We can take those ideas. We can tweak them to fit our church and our community. And we can work and use those uh, to, to make a better impact in our community. We're imitators of one another because we are following after the things of the word of God. We are basing what we do on the scripture, uh, on God's word. Verse 16, Paul tells us exactly what they, were do, what they were doing and how they were serving the Lord. It says, forbidding us to speak to Gentiles that they may be saved. You, you know, you and I, were, we need to be actively communicating the word of God. That's why when we host a food pantry, 
We don't just simply put boxes in people's car and tell them to have a nice day. We walk around and we hand out information. We hand out when the next food pantry is going to be. We hand out when our church services are. And then on the back of every, every piece of paper that we hand out to the people is the plan of salvation. What does a person have to do to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I, I invite them to church and I encourage them to read the stuff that's on the back and I ask them if they have any questions. Uh, and so we are communicating the word of God. Why? So that people might come to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior. You know, we live in a time where people need to have hope. And, and what is the best way of communicating hope? By communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope. And not just hope for the here and now, but hope for the future, hope for eternity. If a person knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, they don't have to worry about where they're going to spend eternity. They know that the moment that their life comes to an end, Pastor Sam McAllister knew the last days of his life and long before that, as he was suffering and as he was spending those last minutes with his family, he knew that the last time he took a breath on this earth would be the next time for him to take a breath in heaven. And he would know that he's going to be there for all of eternity. Never ever having to worry about where he will spend eternity. That's why when I, as a pastor, I have the privilege of doing the funeral of somebody who is born again. Yes, it's a solemn time. Uh, but, but I love the fact that we don't call them funerals anymore, but we call them a celebration of life. Because we're celebrating that that individual Excuse me, that individual lived their life loving God and wanting to serve him. The first funeral I attended in South Africa, a lady by the name of Edna uh, was one of the very early members of our church plant at Grace Baptist Church. And uh, Edna had, had cancer, and she was dying, and she knew that, and her husband, Norman, knew that. And, and, and we would spend time together, uh, and she, he, Norman called me up, and probably in the last couple weeks of Edna's life, and she said, Pastor, she said, he said, I want you to know that Edna really would like you to do her funeral. But many years ago, she asked another pastor that we were sitting under to do the funeral. And so I feel that we have to honor that request. And she didn't change that. And, and so we're going to have him do the funeral. I hope that's okay with you. I said, absolutely, no problem. Until I went to the funeral. Now, Edna was a lady who loved the Lord. You, you didn't have a conversation with Edna where she didn't bring up Jesus Christ. And this guy mentioned nothing about her salvation, nothing about her desire for others to know about her Savior. And you can ask Barb. I was fuming. I was sitting there, and I said, when's he going to talk about the gospel? When's he going to share the message of salvation? When is he going to tell everybody sitting here what Edna wants them to know? I sat through the whole funeral, and it never happened. And on that day, I I told my wife, I said, I will never do a funeral where I don't share the gospel. And so God worked in my heart to help me understand the importance of sharing the gospel at that critical time. Whether the person knows Jesus Christ as their Savior or not, I don't preach people into heaven at funerals. If if their testimony is clear in their lifetime that they knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, then I talk about that and the example that they left behind. 
We need to be preachers, communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ in life and in death, if so be. So as we think about the gospel and as we have opportunity, we speak the gospel to those who need to know Jesus as their Savior. And that's what Paul was telling the Thessalonians here. We want others to know how to be saved, how to know Jesus as their Savior. And you know what? When these things are true of us, the glory of God is seen in us. When we are communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God flows out of our mouth and the others see it in a very real way. Over in, back in Philippians chapter 1, back to the passage of our text this morning, verse 27, we read it, but let me remind you, Paul says there, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because again, we're talking about the idea of this passionate service leading to a worthy conduct. So Paul says the worthy conduct is the goal of the child of God no matter what. As a child of God, it doesn't matter who's watching. We want the the goal of our life to be God getting the glory in what we do and what we say. We also understand that worthy conduct causes the church family to grow in unity. As a unified body of believers, if we want to be unified in the right things, we need to be walking worthy of the calling that God has called us to. Worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity in the spirit and unity of mind with the desire to demonstrate our faith to the world. We want the world to see us as a unified group of individuals. Unified by what? By this. We want to be unified by the word of God. There's nothing else better to be unified about than the word of God. And can I say this, and I don't think that it's true in our church, But when people come through the doors of a church, because listen, we've been in hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of churches over the years, traveling around, presenting our work. Uh, We've been in hundreds of churches. And you can tell very soon after you walk through the doors if there's issues in in that church or if there's a good spirit in that church. And so uh, we want to be unified in the things of the word of God. No matter what, unified. The Nelson Study Bible makes this worthy comment. It says, God never intended believers to be alone. Okay? He never intended for believers to be alone. His plan is that we should gather together, not just for the sake of their individual faith, but also on behalf of the truth of Christianity, their common faith. So when we gather together on Saturday at the park in Cortland, We want people in Cortland to see a unity of mind, a unity of spirit, a unity of faith. What are we unified around? Praying for our nation, praying for our communities, praying that God will do a work to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to be unified in our approach to life and to ministry. And here you go. Worthy conduct gives way to service without fear. Unity and con- or worthy conduct gives way to service without fear. Paul says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. This word terrified was used when a horse was spooked and panicked. Okay, have you ever been around a horse that's been spooked? Not, not pleasant, right? Yeah, Barb's dad, I, I may have told you this one time. Um, 
we, we had horses at Camp Manitoumi. And so we got this new horse. His name was Patch. And you know what happens when you bring a new horse into a group of other horses? Okay, the new horse gets to f- find out who the leader of the pack is. Okay? And Patch was by no means going to be the leader of the pack. And all the other horses wanted Patch to know that. So they ran Patch through a barbed wire fence. That's what the other horses did. And as he ran through the barbed wire fence, he caught his eye, and actually it was this eye, on the fence, and he had a big, long gash on his side. So we called the vet. The vet did what he needed to do, and then he gave us this ointment, this salve. He says, you need to put this in the horse's eye every day. <laughs> Have you ever tried to put something in a horse's eye? So Barb's dad says, would you come and help me do this with Patch? So we get to the horse corral. They're t- he's tied up. You know, he's not going anywhere. So um, he says, okay, hold his head while I put the ointment in his eye. I'd never worked around horses before, okay, just to let you know this. So I grabbed Patch by the nose, and I pulled his head down. And Barb's dad proceeds to try to put the ointment in Patch's eye. And as soon as the tip of the ointment got a, you know, close to Patch's eye, he goes like this. He pulled, you know, now me, holding down on his head, wasn't going to do much. He jerked his head back, and he hit me in the head, and Barb's dad says, would you like to know a trick about how to keep his head? I said, yeah, you could have told me that ahead of time, you know? He says, you grab the horse by the ear, and you twist his ear, and you pull it down. And so that's what I did, and Patch didn't move. Been nice to know that before he got spooked. Anyway, terrified. I'm going to tell you, if Barb's dad hadn't told me about holding the heads, that I wouldn't have ever. I would have never tried to hold a horse's head again. You don't want that experience. Don't be terrified. Don't be like a spooked horse. You don't have to be terrified by your adversaries. That's what Paul is telling the Philippian believers from prison. Remember that. He was in prison because he was preaching the gospel. Paul also says, proof of your adversary's perdition. In other words, these people that don't like you, your adversaries that are trying to stop you from doing what God wants you to do, it's proof of their ungodliness. That's what perdition means. It's proof of the fact that they will spend eternity in hell separated from God if they don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The word proof there was a legal term that determined something was fact only after all the evidence had been examined and a proper conclusion could be drawn. Paul was saying this. He was saying that we don't have to fear because our adversaries have no power against us. In fact, they attack us and their attacks prove that they do not love God and in fact are condemned without him. So when somebody tries to stop you from doing what God wants you to do, what God has called you to do, Paul says, don't listen to them. Don't pay attention to them. Because if they, if they attack you, and you may have to suffer the consequences of being attacked for doing what God calls you to do, God will be with you, and they will pay the price appointed by God when the time is right. Wow. Yeah, we may, we may suffer the consequences here on earth for disobeying 
the magistrates' commands when they command us to go against the word of God. But listen to me. That's only a temporary setback. Because we don't know what our testimony may result in in eternal value. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ because we have stood for what is true and what is right. He goes on to say, but to you of salvation. So this idea of standing firm, standing in the truth is to you proof of your salvation. And that salvation is from God. It's not from man, the salvation that we have. We don't have to worry about what people say or what people think or what people do to us. Because we are children of God and we know where we will spend eternity. And my friends, that's the seed of our joy. That's why Paul, from prison, could talk about being joyful because he knew where he would spend eternity. Not just about the here and now. Our joy isn't about being happy right here, right now. Our joy is about knowing where we will spend eternity for, with, in the presence of God. What a great joy and comfort that brings to you. You know, when you talk to people, one of the things they fear about death is they don't know where they'll spend eternity. Have you talked to people like that? I'm sure that Raymond doesn't know where he'll spend eternity. You can talk to people from other religions, and that's the problem with religion. They talk about, you know, this, you should do this, and you shouldn't do that, whereas Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, we can know where we'll spend eternity. The the closing of the Gospel of John, these things were written that you might know, not have any doubt beyond any shadow of doubt. You may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So you and I have great confidence in where we will spend eternity because of the salvation that God has provided for us. Well, let's move on to the rest of our text, verses 29 through 30. And we see here passionate service. You may think this is worded wrong, but it's not. Passionate service may allow us to willingly suffer for Christ. Passionate service may allow us to willingly suffer for the cause of Christ. We've probably all heard someone say that as Christians, we can expect to suffer or face some kind of persecution at some point in our Christian life. Now, that hasn't been the case really in America, has it? But hold on to your seats, because it might be coming. You know, we used to say that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, not really thinking that it was going to come. But when we say that today, it could be literally around the corner. We, we are probably heading down the path of where we as Christians will, have to, will, will face some kind of persecution for the stand that we take for Jesus Christ. I hope you're ready for it. I hope I'm ready for it. You know, because as we stand on the outside and we look in, we say, oh yeah, I'm ready for that. We won't know until the rubber meets the road. And by God's grace and by walking in a worthy conduct, we will be more likely to stand in the difficult times that may face us ahead than if if we're not walking of a worthy conduct. I've heard Christians say that if you haven't faced some kind of suffering for the sake of the gospel, you might not be living for Christ. I don't know that I would agree with that totally, especially in the context of our current lifestyle. But, you know, talking to believers from other countries... Absolutely. Face 
conflict, face persecution, face suffering because they love Jesus Christ and they tell others about it. We need to face persecution when and if it comes with the right mindset. If we don't, it might prevent us from being effective in our service for Christ. Paul talks about that mindset in verses, verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul calls it a privilege to suffer. Did you catch that when we read it? Verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It was granted to you. Now, when you think of that word granted, what comes to mind? It's something that's given to you that you don't have to repay. You don't have to give it back. You know, uh, when we were going to college, we applied for a Pell Grant, uh, and we got a Pell Grant. It came from the government. We didn't have to pay it back. Whew, thank the Lord for that. Okay? A grant is something that you don't have to give back. It's given to you with no strings attached. Well, at least not for us. For the institution, there might be strings attached, but at least for us, there's no strings attached. See, Paul says it's been granted to you that you can suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying we have privileges in suffering for Christ. We're privileged to be able to do that. What are those privileges that you're talking about, Paul? Well, he says that we can entrust everything to him. That phrase where it says to believe on him, this word believe is not just an intellectual agreement or assent to the existence of Christ. But this word believe actually comes from the Greek word for faith. It means to entrust in or to be committed to. I am committed to following the way of Jesus Christ. I'm committed to following the scriptures. Remember what Paul said over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? I'm sure you can quote those verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul wants us to remember that we can trust God. Because of the faith that has been granted to us. God granted us the ability to accept what he says about his son and to apply it personally to our lives. So we have the opportunity and the privilege and the right, if you will, to entrust everything to our great God. We also have the opportunity to endure suffering for his sake. We endure suffering. Suffering means to endure hardship or to be adversely affected. Now, this could be an eye-opener for some of us today. Suffering because of my commitment to Christ is to be considered a gift of grace from God to his children. Wow. Suffering for the cause of Christ should be considered as a gift of grace from God to his children. Why can I suffer? Because God has given me grace. My, my human reaction might be to lash back out when somebody causes me to suffer for Christ. But instead, I should be exhibiting the grace of God to those who are causing me to suffer because of what I believe. I've often spoken to Christians that feel they are suffering because God wants to punish them. Have you talked to people like that? I don't know what I've done wrong, but God must be upset with me because he's doing this in my life. That can be the case, but not often. 
God's not uh, an ogre up in heaven looking to give you a slap upside the head. God is a gracious and forgiving God. And as you study scripture, you will see what God wants you to do, how God wants you to live. And if you're living that way, then God's not punishing you for some uh, unknown sin of 100 years ago. But when people think that they're suffering because God wants to punish them, uh, let me encourage you to maybe think about it a little differently why you might be suffering. Job's friends, remember them? We call them friends. When they came to comfort Job, they said, Job, man, you got something going on in your life that you're not sharing with everybody else because look what God's doing to you. You're a bad boy. You, you must be doing something awful because God has really struck you. And Job's like, I'm telling you, I'm not doing anything wrong that, I don't, that I'm aware of. I'm loving God. I'm serving God. And I don't know why this is happening. And that was true, that was genuine. So if you are living for the Lord and you're honoring the Lord with your lifestyle and there's something bad going on in your life or difficult or challenging, don't assume that God's trying to punish you for it. Man, Job had to, had to tell his friends time and time again, that's not the case. And they, they didn't believe him. Yeah, right, Job, uh-huh. You're hiding something, you're not telling us something. You're not tell, giving us the whole story, Job. The whole story was that God wanted to use Job for his honor and for his glory. And so he said to Satan, Satan, you can have Job. You can do what you want. Just spare his life. And as a result, God was glorified through the sufferings of this man named Job. And Job set set for us an amazing example of how we can respond in suffering. I tell people when they say, God's trying to punish me, I often will tell them, uh, well, if there's no obvious sign of sin in your life, then God's trying to grow you and not persecute you, not punish you. God's trying to grow you in this difficult time. The best thing you can do during this difficult time is to remain faithful to God. Remain faithful and to look for whatever it is that God is trying to teach you. And you know what? I probably can't give you the answer what it is that God's trying to teach you. Because sometimes people will say, well, pastor, what is it that God's trying to teach me? I I don't know. Just be faithful. Just continue to read the word of God. Continue to serve, the, serve our great God. Be faithful. Do the next right thing. Whatever that is, do the next right thing. And God will show that to you. You may understand in this lifetime why you're suffering. You may not. And here's another little thing. People say, well, I'll ask God when I get to heaven why I'm suffering. You won't need to. Because you'll know. You know why? Because we'll know the way God knows. We'll know all things that God wants us to know. So we have this, this privilege in suffering. I also want you to understand the positive aspect of suffering. There's, there's positive things that come from suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. You see, when you and I suffer for Christ, we can be confident that Christ will also comfort us. When we suffer for the cause of Christ, Christ will comfort us. He he will come alongside of us in a very real way. And we will know that he is there to comfort us. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad for ex- with exceeding joy. You know what? You and I should consider suffering for Christ that leads us to rejoicing because it identifies us with Christ and that brings glory to him. When you and I suffer for the cause of Christ, it identifies us as Christ followers and it brings glory to his great name. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here you go. Our suffering for Christ is temporary, but our confidence regarding eternity is evident. When you suffer for the cause of Christ and you point others to Christ in your suffering, we are confident that in eternity our joy will be overflowing. Our rewards, our home are conforming to Christ and and others will see that in spite of the suffering that we are facing. We can be confident of where we will spend eternity. Going back to the pen of the Apostle Peter, Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, in his first epistle, he wrote this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love." Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is there a hallelujah for that? You see, you see, what Peter is saying here is when you face various trials, They result in glory, honor, and praise, and that is a confirmation of your salvation. People will say to me sometimes, Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. Well, if you're being persecuted for the cause of Christ and others are being brought to Christ as a result of that, it is a confirmation of your salvation. We need to keep going because the clock doesn't stop for us. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we will also be glorified together. Wow. That's amazing. What, what Paul is writing here. We are heirs with God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And if we suffer with him, that is proof of our sonship, of our salvation, of our, of our joint heirship, if you will. You see, Paul tells the Roman Christians that when they suffer with Christ, they will also be conformed to his image. They will be transformed into the image of Christ. We'll no longer look like us. 
but will look more like Jesus Christ. So the truth here is that if we want to be more like Jesus Christ, don't be afraid of the suffering that comes our way as a result of that persecution or suffering. There's a a group of singers from South Africa called Tree 63. They sing a song that's called, called Blessed Be Your Name. Timothy's going to play that for us, and it's, a, it's just a great reminder of us, to us of how we should respond when suffering comes our way.
in the desert place. You know what the desert place reminds us of? It reminds us of a place of suffering. In the wilderness, children of Israel, as they wandered the wilderness, they saw it as a, as a mark of suffering for uh, their lack of trust in God. On the road marked with suffering, when there's pain in the offering, we need to understand that the blessings of God don't remove all the difficulties of life. But rather, when those difficulties come, I have a choice that I must make. I can choose to bless the name of the Lord, or I can say, woe is me. Remember what Job's response was in the suffering? I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the earth again shall stand. Nothing took away Job's joy in knowing who his Redeemer was and that his Redeemer would again intercede and work on his behalf. I know that my Redeemer lives. You and I, we can know that our Redeemer lives. And as we face the difficult days that may lie ahead for us, or maybe you've already been facing difficult days, you can know that your suffering can result in glory to God if we choose to let our testimony, our lifestyle, bless the name of our great God. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. What a great reminder uh, in song for us this morning. Well, the last thing that's on your note page is uh, suffering for Christ permits us to identify with the Apostle Paul. Remember we talked about Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Well, if we are imitating the Apostle Paul, then we can identify with him in his suffering. You see, some of the Philippian believers saw the suffering that Paul endured on his first visit to Philippi when he was again arrested and thrown in prison, beaten. But then, as a result of the way he responded to that persecution, the Philippian jailer and his whole household came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They identified with the Apostle Paul. All of them had heard about the difficulties that Paul faced and had actually, those difficulties landed him in prison because he passionately served his Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what? This is encouraging because we know that You and I, we're not the only ones that may suffer or have suffered for the cause of Christ. It reminds us that when we suffer for the cause of Christ, we are leaving an example for those who will follow behind us. So as we started off with our sermon this morning, we entitled it, Passionate Service Proves Christ is Number One in Our Lives. You and I, how do we know that Christ is number one in our lives? Well, if we're, if we're suffering for the cause of Christ and we're suffering the way we ought to suffer and we're taking it as though God has called us to this because of our worthy calling. I don't know how many of you, when you were growing up, or maybe you were adults at the time, but a very popular thing, giveaway, now it's pens, right? Everybody, and, and if you get a stylus on your pen, that's even better. Um, but back when I was growing up, businesses used to give away keychains in the shape of a number one says, you're number one with us. Do you ever get one of those? Well, we, we can't get a keychain that says to God, you're number one with me. But the way I live life, if I, if I live my life in a way that honors God, that is worthy of the conduct that he has called me to, then I know 
that Christ is number one in my life, and, and he knows my heart, so he obviously knows if he's number one in my life. But you know what? If you and I are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and suffer, suffer great hardship sometimes for him, then we know that he is indeed number one in our lives. Now, as we close this morning, perhaps you've been challenged with whether or not Christ is number one. The quickest way to know that he's number one is to find out, ask yourself this question, how am I serving my great God? Is my, is my service for God passionate? Is my service for God evident to others? Do people see and know that I love Jesus Christ? Paul's Paul's service led him to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's make it our prayer this morning that we will indeed let Jesus Christ be number one in our lives and that we will be faithful servants to the cause of Jesus Christ. We will serve our great God by serving others and by serving others even through our local body here at Calvary Baptist Church. Passionate service proves that Christ is number one in our lives. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning.